Welcome to the Academy Podcast, where our mission is to improve lives through education, information, and some cool stories. My name is Dr. Mark Guadagnoli. I'm the Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and a Professor of Neuroscience and Neurology at the Kirkukorian School of Medicine. We have two guests today, Dr. Irma Corral and Jay Guilford. Dr. Corral is the Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. He's also an Associate Professor for Psychiatry and Behavioral Health here at the Kirkukorian School. Jay Guilford is the Founder and Principal at CoWorks, and he's had a long history in leadership development and diversity, equity, and inclusion. This includes, by the way, some work that he did for years at Cirque du Soleil here in Las Vegas, where he created the SPARK program, which is a really cool leadership development program. So the three of us are going to have an inviting conversation about a topic that may be emotionally charged, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Very important topic that a lot of people have opinions about. Dr. Corral and Jay will talk about the perspective of DEI in business and in healthcare. I hope that this conversation expands your perspective for diversity, equity, inclusion, and your empathy for others, as it did mine. Thank you very much for being here, Jay Guilford and Dr. Irma Corral. Uh, today, we're going to talk generally about DEI. We're going to first define what DEI is, and we've got a whole variety of topics. I, I got to tell you, because we've already started this conversation with the whole uh, Academy team, it's actually a really fascinating conversation. And I know, you, Jay, you in particular have talked about, you know, sometimes this can go wrong, right? The uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion kinds of training, which have really been around since the 1960s, but they've, they've escalated in training in years and years as there's been a whole host of more sensitivities and for, you know, legitimate reasons around them. So we're gonna talk about this, we're gonna talk about your journey all the way through it and, and some uh, what I think are really interesting and informed perspectives that both of you have. So Jay, would you mind giving a little bit of background about yourself uh, professionally, personally, however you'd like to talk about it, just so the audience knows who you are. Hey, I'm Jay Guilford and uh, I refer to myself as a leadership strategist because I go inside of organizations and uh, one of the things that I do is help them with their leadership strategy. Um, but I guess the shiniest thing, Mark, and you know this, and, and uh, uh, Dr. Corral, you know, is that I worked with a bunch of clowns long ago on a land far, far away. I was at Cirque du Soleil, and I developed Cirque du Soleil's corporate leadership training program. Um, and so uh, I strapped executives onto equipment and flew them across Cirque du Soleil theaters. Uh, and it's really, for me, my whole background is about experiential learning. So um, what I do inside of trainings uh, with organizations is to help them understand concepts by taking them through experiences. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, one could argue that you're still working with a bunch of clowns, Jay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to say that. <laughs> uh, Dr. Corral. Sure. So, um, I am a clinical psychologist specialized in behavioral medicine. Uh, therapeutically, the clinical work that I've done in the past is to help individuals cope with chronic illness, um, uh, disease that is sort of debilitating and terminal conditions. And so um, I've been involved in medical education for 12 years, and the past four years have been working in diversity, equity, and inclusion administration. And currently at the Kirk Corian School of Medicine at UNLV, you're the assistant dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion. You're also an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral health. That's correct. Yep. Okay, great. Thank you. And thank you both for being here. Jay, if you could give us a start... Uh, 
talk to us a little bit about your origin story, if you will, getting into DEI, and if you wouldn't mind giving me your definition as well. Well, first of all, origin story. Uh, I'm Black American, if people are only listening to me through the audio, so it'll make sense if I say that. Uh, I actually uh, did a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion training uh, back when I was an educator. So for about 10 years, that was kind of like the core of my uh, what I offered as a trainer. And then I moved on to corporate America. I kind of sold out. <laughs> you know, and I went to the corporate side, worked with a lot of companies, and I actually entered the DEI arena kicking and screaming. Uh, I didn't want to do it, but uh, I got a call. My origin story more recently is that I got a call from an organization maybe a couple of years ago back, you know, Black Lives Matter and unfortunately George Floyd's murder. And they asked, they said, Jay, we want your help. You've worked with us before. Can you help us hire African-Americans? And they were in another part of the world where there were not any African-Americans. And it really concerned me because I saw generally that people had a very narrow definition of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, there's a lot of great work being done out there, uh, but a lot of people conflate DEI with anti-racism. So there is anti-racism, there is uh, gender issues, there's heterosexism, there's ableism, and then there's a host of opportunities with diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I wanted to help organizations look at all of that stuff. So uh, that's kind of the origins of why I am now on the DEI train. So let me know your definition of DEI. Well, I would say, and I, I know Dr. Crow has a great definition too, but I would say diversity is the widest range or the range of identities in your community, your organization. Uh, equity is giving each of those identities what they uniquely need, not giving everyone the same thing, but giving each individual what they uniquely need. And inclusion would be the result of diversity and equity. That's my definition. Beautiful. Thank you very much. That's a great start, Dr. Corral. I got initially into um, DEI education through my work in my discipline. So I started one-on-one -on -one teaching concepts like cultural competence and structural competence. And that led me to then work with the educators and staff who were also involved in the teaching mission of the, of the educational setting where I was at. And eventually that led to opportunities to think more strategically about what did we need as a whole organization. So for the past four years, I've been working as an administrator in diversity, equity, and inclusion work, thinking more broadly there um, on the kind of strategic side and the faculty education piece specifically. So I really like Jay's uh, definition. Diversity is really about who is there and make uh, having some thoughtfulness about representation of the community in which you serve. I think especially in education, that's something that's important to us as um, the aspirational goal is uh, um, meeting the composition of the place where you practice and work. Um, but the other pieces are um, more important, right? It's about making sure that people have what they uniquely need um, and who's engaged and active and, and uh, are the opportunities equitable across the board. So diversity is sort of the floor. Um, equity and inclusion are actually the main um, work. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and I like what both of you have said around this. And flip it for just a second and tell me what DEI is not. So I think in the past, um, some of the concerns that people have had uh, is that this is a, a calling out or like 
we're here to tell some individuals that you are bad and um, it is your fault. And I think that's not the purpose of this work at all. It's really about maximizing everybody's ability to work well and, and to learn well in the environment in which they're at. Um, so it's more of a calling in. It's about thinking, what do we stand for as an organization? Who do we wish to be? Um, all of that drives excellence. And I think when people feel welcome and included, they, that's when they can do their best work. Yeah, that's great. Jay, how about you? I, I would say the same thing. Uh, I agree with Dr. Corral. What I've seen is that in some trainings, it can be nearly anti-racism. So it can make white men feel like I'm going to go into a room and get my, my, the finger wagged at me for a couple of hours. And when we understand that it's about a wide range of issues and opportunities, then everyone feels, I love that phrase, called in, and everyone gets to participate because we can think about how do we get more people who have various types of abilities and disabilities? How can we think about neurodiversity? How can we welcome trans people and non-binary people? And, it, and it's an open conversation about including as many people resources as possible in the community. So I, I really appreciate what you said, Dr. So, there, you know, one of the things that's interesting, as we were talking before uh, we came in, we, before we started filming, uh, we, we were just generally talking about our own experiences with diversity. And, and both of you told really, I uh, thought, poignant and interesting stories. Do you mind sharing that as well? Your story about traveling to Mexico in particular. Sure. Yeah, I was I was sharing with the group that sometimes I forget what it's like to completely blend in until I find myself in my native origin when I'm able to travel to Mexico where I'm from originally. And so um, what's that phrase? Like, I didn't know I was waiting to exhale. But I feel that way a lot when I'm there just because there's just absolute comfort. And um, that disappears again, I think, when I come back into the U.S. and especially in, in educational settings in some workplaces. Um, there's a sense that I have to um, sort of be more on guard. And so that's been my experience. Jay, how about you? Yeah, I remember specifically in middle school and high school. High school is where it really happened. Uh, I'm black and I'm from the South and everybody in my family's got a Southern accent. And I don't have one now, but it was specifically because I was in an all-black high school. And the teachers told me, they said, uh, Guilford, we're going to send you over to try to get scholarships from the white folks, but you can't talk like you're talking. So in ninth grade, I had a teacher who uh, drilled the Southern accent out of me, and they taught me to assimilate and, and acculturate. And um, the beauty of that was that I got a lot of opportunities. I went to college and graduate school. I worked with a lot of corporations and uh, academic institutions. The challenge was that, you know, it uh, created a rift in my family because I became a person who talked like this, you know, and, you know, when I, my name is on paper, James Guilford. So when I call people up I, until I show up or they look at me on LinkedIn, they kind of don't know, you know, so it's, and we talked about this, it's just a trade-off. So I think a lot of people, the further you are, the further you are away from the margins in any regard, um, the more challenging it is. And sometimes you have to acculturate. It, it's interesting, right? Because there are challenges all over, um, no matter what. I mean, this is the the thing that I hear both of you saying, and we were talking about this before. There, for everybody, there are challenges, and I think being sensitive to those challenges. And a point that was brought up earlier is is being empathetic, and and trying to understand from other people's perspectives as well. Can I ask 
just in general, what do you think is, are some of the origins of uh, a lack of diversity mindset? I'm talking about a lack, a mindset that is a lack of diversity, a lack of equity, a lack of inclusion. Where does that come from, from your perspectives? It's a great question. I think in in healthcare, um, one of the things that I've seen in a lot of settings is we have an assumption of benevolence uh, because we think healthcare professionals are caring people who are here to do um, good by others, and we've selected a profession to to be helpful, and so we assume that um, bias cannot live in this environment, and that no one here is excluding others. Um, and unfortunately, that lack of introspection, I think, leads to some blind spots. And so um, it's something that we have to take a look at more uh, thoughtfully. And the data would tell us that um, that's just not the case. Um, it is present in our environment, and we have to address it. I'd, I'd borrow that word bias. That's what the human brain is wired to be biased. And it helps us in so many ways. We're creating shortcuts in our brain so you don't have to learn how to drive every time you get into the car so that bias can be helpful. At the same time, we may not understand that we're making these shortcuts with human categories. We've created these categories, and I would say they're mostly fictitious. I mean, because if you lined us all up, we would be on a color spectrum or we'd be on a neurodiversity spectrum. But we do have the categories, and they're useful in some ways um, when we don't understand that we are short shortcutting and we're biologically wired to do it, then you're acting out of bias. And I, what I've seen in many institutions, just in terms of if you want to talk about power, it's just about affinity bias. You know, I'm this person, I'm going to grab this person in my network and that person in my network, and they all look the same and they all have the same background. So it's not necessarily that there's a maliciousness. It's just I have an affinity bias and I'm grabbing for the folks in my network and they all have the same privilege and experience. I, I, I've got to say, I agree with this. I mean, I think about things from a cognitive perspective a lot, of course, but I, we all have biases, and in disregarding race, ethnicity, and so forth, there are biases. What's my favorite ice cream? Right, if I walk into a dark alley, how do I feel? Um, and based on somewhat on my experiences, and based on a whole host of other things, I'm going to have a bias towards that. And and it seems that the bias, unless it's extreme, the bias is not the issue per se. It's the the inability to let the new data come in, right, and inform people. And I think that, to me, is a difference between having a bias and, and ignorance around the bias. Uh, and I, I don't mean ignorance in a, a defamatory way. I'm saying, you know, for anything that we have, if we don't allow new data to come in and to be able to interpret that data, it's going to be problematic for us, right? And we're we're choosing ignorance in that state rather than informed. I also think it's important when we talk about bias to decouple intent from impact because I think that trips people up a lot. So they think, I didn't intend it that way, so it can't possibly be bias. But what you intend doesn't actually matter. Um, what matters is what is the impact that it had on the other person. So I think being able to separate those two sometimes helps. And it, and it, it helps people to feel less um, confronted or um, called out. I think when, when you can understand that your intent could be uh, neutral or benevolent and it could still have a negative impact. It's a, it's a re that's a really interesting point to me because 
I can see, uh, uh, I shouldn't say I can see, I have done this before where I've said something or done something with even a positive intent that's interpreted by the other person differently than, than I wanted. And, and I get defensive about it, right? Well, I didn't intend anything. Why are you upset with me? Rather than thinking from the other person's perspective, and, and ultimately it doesn't matter what my intention was. I mean, I, I don't know that that's completely true. If I was going to be an ass about it, that would, you know, that would matter. But, but my, in this case, not intending to offend the person, in fact, intending to be benevolent, as you said, should give me space to understand and be empathetic to the other person. And yet I know that sometimes our natural reaction is to be defensive about it because we thought we were doing something nice, so why are, why are we being punished for that nice thing? It's, it's almost like you want to give someone a fancy meal so you serve them shellfish, but they're allergic. Yeah. Like, why are you swelling up? It's <laughs> I'm, because I'm yeah. allergic to that. It's like the words we use. At, I'm allergic to those words you're saying to me. So It's a great, it's a great example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to borrow that if you, you can have it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, you had, you had mentioned this, Dr. Corral, about the, the medical environment, the healthcare environment, right? There's some, there's some uniquenesses to the healthcare environment. Uh, I know we've talked about this before. Could you share that with the audience as well? Yeah, I think there's there's been some interesting um, literature around um, sort of like what makes environments risky for bias to occur. And so some of the things are not specific to medicine, but they definitely occur a lot in the healthcare environment. And so when we are pressed for time, when there is urgency in the decisions that have to be made, then that is when our brains want to go on autopilot. And um, so that by itself is a risk for the automatic processes that happen and for biases to sort of occur naturally. And so today's, uh, you know, uh, medicine is extremely high paced and uh, healthcare workers are also pressed for lots of time uh, in that they have lots of other competing demands. And so that time hunger that they're feeling also puts them at risk for some of these biases popping up unconsciously. It's And, you know, it's interesting because there are so many uh, opportunities, if you will, for bias in medicine. There are hierarchical bias, you know, based on what the person's position is and so forth. So I think it's a really good example. And you're dealing with highly sensitive, you know, in some case, life or death situations. Um, and and we go to the point, Jay, that you had made before about we default into certain behaviors because there's efficiencies around that, right? Those efficiencies become inefficiencies if we've if we've guessed wrong, so to speak. What's your thought about this? You know, I often think about it. What's been on my mind is uh, trans and non-binary issues, and I think about how it seems efficient to look at someone's presentation and assume something about them. And I can imagine in medicine, if you don't have, you know, I, I've been to lots of doctors and some people ask the question about your pronouns and your your gender identity and some don't. And that can be valuable information if you're going to be seeing that patient because there's a host of uh, services or questions you might need to ask in order to service them properly. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, I think the biases show up everywhere, but I think in uh, medicine, it can be especially uh, helpful or harmful. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I think, you know, if we, well, so certainly medicine, but if we think about situations that are 
potentially already vulnerable situations, those those areas are probably going to be even more acute in what we're talking about. So, you know, with this in mind, you know, we're in a medical school, we would love to have a culture that is an inclusive culture, right? So what are some of the things that you would do in, a, in an organization to start shifting the culture in a positive direction? Um, psychologists have this idea that cultures um, are sort of in a, in a cycle of mutual constitution at all times. And what we mean by that is that um, in some ways it comes from the top down, but it also comes from the bottom up. So a culture defines behavior at the individual level, but what people do at the individual level then shapes the greater culture. So I think Sometimes what, what feels hard about shifting culture is no one has an idea of how to do it. It feels untenable, like I'm just one person and there's no way I can make an impact. But in fact, we all have the power to shift culture because everything that we do at the one-on-one -on -one level is in fact creating the culture in which we create. So even a single person shifting um the way that they think, the way that they act, the way that they model inclusive behavior, that has a ripple effect and it starts sort of spreading and it becomes the culture. So I think, how do you do it? You get a group, a critical mass of people that are on board, that are excited about this, that, you know, for, for whom it's important. Uh, it's, it's, it's genuine and it, and it starts to spread because it's something worth doing. Okay. Shifting culture, I, I think... This is going to sound cliche, but the mission statement is so important. Uh, I've worked a lot of organizations and they have mission statements that are just like, diversity is good. We should have diversity. But when you read, I would encourage all the listeners to read Netflix's uh, DEI mission statement. And they say, we make movies for people around the world. And they list some of those movies. And they say, because we do that, we need to have diverse people in our organizations. And that statement is so specific to Netflix that no one else can own it. And uh, Google says, we're trying to organize information for everyone around the world. And because we're trying to do that, we need to be inclusive. So when you think about the organization, if you have the stakeholders sit down and ask themselves, and this is going to sound crass, but I really mean it, how does DEI benefit us as uh, a medical institution, as an academic institution, as a nonprofit? How does it differentiate us? What are the opportunities? So when you clearly define that for yourself and you can sit your statement down on a table and it can't belong to any other institution, it needs to be at least in the industry, but very specifically, like only UNLV Medical School could have said this or only Netflix could have said this. Um, so I think you have to start by really understanding why it's important to you. And you have to think about it from the missions and the goals and the aspirations of the, the organization. And then if you have that clearly in place, and if, if it's meaningful to you, you then really believe it. And then everyone's going to live it, not because it's a moral imperative, but because it's it's the mission. It relates, you know, Netflix is trying to sell more movies. So it's the mission. So you got to really tie it to the mission. It's So it's interesting. I just noticed recently that Netflix, uh, maybe they've done this before, but I only noticed it recently. They, uh, they have their end of year, you know, 2022 movies, and they'll talk about the list, how many countries... This movie is, you know, a top 10 in or, or those kinds of things. And so it, it is so global now. And, and so they're, they are actually standing to their mission as far as that goes. It's, the other thing that's interesting to me is when you start looking at the literature on 
uh, DEI programs and institutions that have invested in DEI programs, you know, you mentioned CRAS, if you're just measuring by profits, um, a lot of these institutions, in fact, most of them have, are outpacing those individual companies who do not uh, invest in this. And in fact, there now seems to be a negative repercussion in profits and, and um, you know, some of the positive metrics of those individual companies who do not invest in DEI. And, and then I'll just say one more thing about this, and I, I'm interested in your thoughts. And specifically, it appears that those companies who do not talk about the legality of DEI as training, right? We're doing this because there's some legal reasons and so forth. Those are the ones who seem to be really uh, leading the charge in a positive way as far as the shift in culture is concerned. So thoughts about this? Oh, I, I saw this um, beautiful graph um, some years ago, and it, it came from the private sector, but it was sort of like a, a maturity model in how organizations think about DEI. So it starts uh, from a place of not even understanding why this is important, so just like uncertainty. Um, and then it sort of moves to a compliance place of like, this. it's because of legal things, and we have to do it because of that. But then it becomes more strategic and then more integrated. And the top level is leading with diversity. So it becomes it becomes why you do what you do. Um, and it's no longer at that, those lower kind of uh, floor levels of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just for compliance. You are leading with diversity. And, and that's, I think, where creativity, innovation, and um, success really live. I'd love to see the graph. It it almost sounds like it starts from a, a almost a punishment and negative perspective, and it moves into the positive side. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. Jay. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, I think if it is intrinsically tied to the DNA of the organization, those those organizations are the ones that are winning. I think, you know, when I when you look at the private sector, if you look at Uber, if you look at T-Mobile, if you they're all saying diversity is our they don't say it this way, so don't quote me, but diversity is our profit motive. Mm-hmm. So even in nonprofit organizations, there's still a profit there's profit in there. You need so I think you know, thinking about it from a customer service model, like for medical professionals thinking about it like you got to run into a trans or non-binary person. You might want to think about how to service that person. Um, one, because you want the customer to be customer to be satisfied, but also two, we live in a cancel culture, and every organization and every individual is one tweet away from disgrace. So it's about satisfying the customer, and it's also about protecting the organization too. I think those are both important. So, got. I'd like to admit something to both of you right now. Um, so, I know both of you. I think we get along really well. We've had some great conversations. I've, I can feel myself being nervous in this conversation. Um, and, and so I've been sort of in the back of my head thinking about why, why would I be nervous, right? We, we've had great, lots of great conversations. We were just having one a minute ago about this topic. I think the reason is because I feel like I'm going to misstep. It's exactly your point, right? I'm going to say something by accident or something that's, that isn't intended to be insensitive, but maybe it is. And that's the cancel culture. It's really interesting that I, I don't know that I've had this feeling as strongly as I do right now as we're having this conversation. 
I really like that you said that actually, because it brings to mind, um, like when we look at like educational models of how do we get people to feel comfortable around certain topics? We always think we need knowledge, attitudes, and then skills, right? So a lot of times that fear of the misstep is what keeps people stuck at the earlier stages. Like, I'm just going to learn everything I can about diversity. They're in the knowledge piece. Um, but they never really get to the skills part. It's like, uh, if you misstep, you can take you can take a step back. Um, there's never like a misstep so bad that it's going to be catastrophic the vast majority of the times, especially if you can um, correct course in the moment. And so that's a skill. It's something that you can practice and learn. But there's so much fear around the topic sometimes that I think we don't think about this as a skill that I can learn. But that's the purpose of a lot of these trainings is to give us safe environments to practice mm -hmm. so that when you're in a really high stakes situation and if you do misstep, you can also walk it back. Yeah, it's a really interesting thought. Yeah, it's emotionally charged. That's the other part. I think when we talk about DEI, we talk about the issues. And so when you walk into the room, what you're thinking about is how to avoid the issue. Yeah. And you're not thinking about the opportunity for you to learn or for someone else to learn. Well, I mean, I don't know this, but I, I would think that the feeling that I'm having right now, the discomfort that I'm having is exactly the feeling some other people have when they're in an environment that they're not comfortable with, right? Because of a whole variety of, of you know, being disenfranchised in their past, it, whatever it happens to be, right? This, it, and I'm certainly not claiming to understand fully what, what it feels like. I know what I feel like in this situation, but um, those types of things, I think prov those experiences provide us an opportunity for empathy. And, uh, and I love the idea that we can, we can talk about this, right? We can talk about this openly without judgment so that we can move forward. Absolutely. And um, I think learning to be comfortable with some discomfort is part of the skill set that you learn when you're open to um, growing in this area. It's, uh, it's one of the things we've talked about several times, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And that's where growth comes from, right? And, and that's where you really get to embrace it instead of be, being afraid of it. Yeah. And I, I just can admit to myself, that um, I've had to work with trans and non-binary people. And uh, in my first interactions, I was like, uh, what am I going to do? I'm going to say the wrong thing. And then I finally said, I might say the wrong thing. And I got correct corrected many times. And yeah. it was very helpful. So I think being open and honest about how you're feeling and saying, like, uh, I might misstep and having a safe space where people can do that. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. Well, first of all, I appreciate both of you for being uh, open to listen to my confessions. So um, the, the other thing is, again, both of you uh, have some overlap in how you think about it, but you also have some different ways that you think about from an explanation from sort of a, uh, I don't mean philosophical in, in that it's not practical, but you have a philosophy about this topic in general. And I, I don't really need to even ask you a question about it. You can just talk about this. Tell me a bit about your philosophies around the bigger question of DEI. I don't know. I mean, I think um, 
I think I've been a student of culture my whole life, just a, as an artifact of being an immigrant in the U.S. And so um, when I think like really early on, I was fascinated with this idea of how do people thrive when they are in a new and challenging environment that is very different than anything they've ever known before. That was the original question that I had in my mind that led me to um, a career in psychology. And um, down the road, I think, I can started to connect that with health outcomes and what it would mean to help people thrive with their health um, when they were experiencing a lot of challenges related to this sociocultural environment. And so um, that was kind of the origin for me. I definitely admit that I approached the problem from my discipline's perspective, but um, I also was trained in public health, and I think that led me to develop a wider lens, to look further upstream, to look more at systemic levels, policy, um, organizations, and um, institutions, and how those impact and um, have negative or positive outcomes down the road. So my work in this area is definitely, I think, driven by my personal experience, but my professional training has really developed alongside of it to um, help me to do what I do. Can, can you go just a little bit deeper yeah. into the idea of how health is impacted? Sure. So um, in medical education, just as an example, a lot of times the messages that we give students about disparities, just as an example, is we talk a lot about the deficit. So this population has this condition at higher prevalence rates, but then there's sort of a void in the why. Um, and so in that absence, students have to create their own um, explanation of why that is. And I think accidentally what we do is we end up um, creating stereotypes. We sort of blame the, the individuals for their conditions in the absence of any kind of sociocultural explanation. So the upstream factors that we have to include in medical education is understanding how does health even begin? Um, how far back does it go? Um, how do we build healthy communities so that people have the opportunity to have equal health outcomes um, their whole life? And that's a pretty... Uh, big call, right, to go all the way back. Uh, but that's necessary for people to have a sense of health in uh, full context as opposed to health in the abstract. So how do we build healthy outcomes? So it begins, I think, when if we think about policy, equal neighborhoods, right, equal institutions, and that um, is how people have access to equality down the road. So, for example, if uh, you live in a neighborhood where the school is underfunded, that's going to significantly impact your ability to um, maximize your educational opportunities, right? That's going to determine where you end up going to high school, where you go to um, college. That's going to determine what um, employment opportunities you have down the road. So it starts really at the grassroots uh, neighborhood level and thinking about how much are we investing in um, neighborhoods in the cities where we live. And so I think that's a big place where um, healthcare professionals can have an impact with advocacy and really thinking about um, investing in neighborhoods more uh, equally. Yeah. It's one of, the, one of the things that I think is uh, fantastic about the charter of, of our medical school, the Kurt Quarian School of Medicine. 
um, is that we're we're located in uh, impover- near impoverished neighborhoods. We have a commitment to service in those neighborhoods as well, and uh, and it becomes a very very rich experience for the students to go work in those neighborhoods, um, and and then combined with what you just said. It's not just a rich experience for the students. It's a necessary experience for the people in the neighborhoods as well. Sure. So, and I think hopefully what happens when students have those experiences and they have a good foundation of understanding how neighborhoods um, become impoverished is that you stop accepting that as the outcome, um, that we denaturalize inequality um, and that we see the opportunities for changing that in the future. So this neighborhood does not have to stay that way if we can look upstream farther enough and figure out how to change the conditions so that that can change with time. So it's interesting. We're in Las Vegas, and uh, several years ago, uh, Tony Shea, who was the CEO of Zappos at the time, started what's called the Downtown Project, and it was to revitalize the downtown area and, and create a, you know, a commerce area, neighborhoods, and so forth. And one of the biggest issues that he ran into was people didn't want to start grocery stores downtown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it never occurred to me one way or the other, but there were no grocery stores or places to buy groceries downtown. And that was a deal breaker for for a lot of the growth, right? Because you couldn't do it. Well, then you start thinking about, well, hold on, people have lived around here for a long time and they haven't had grocery stores, right? Um, and it's, you know, we, we take that for granted. Right? But it is something so fundamental and so important that if you don't have that, what are you going to do, especially if you don't have transportation, right? I mean, I, uh, Dr. Corral said it best, like when I think when people get what they need, they can succeed. And I, that was my story. Uh, I was first-generation low-income college student, and I had scholarships, and people gave me what I needed, and I was able to acculturate, for better or for worse, and I've seen it in education. I was a teacher for many years, and I've seen students who have been exported to private schools, which is great, you know, because they're first generation low income. I remember a specific time a student was in a private school, and he was not succeeding, and he was poor, and he was black, and it was because he didn't have a laptop. And I was at the school, and I, I, I said, well, of course he doesn't have a laptop. He can't afford to come to the school. He's taking the bus two hours every day, but I think uh, my philosophy is that the equity part is really important. When you give individuals uniquely what they need, they can succeed. Why did you become a teacher? Um, <laughs> uh, well, first, I think I thought I defaulted into it. So, uh, But what I realized was that I had the unique capacity to communicate abstract concepts in ways that people could understand. And um, that's how I de- uh, approach a DEI training. And the same thing, like bias, is a concept that seems so amorphous, like what does it mean, what does it mean? But when you take people through a simulation that's not about this identity or that identity or this person's right or that person's wrong, but when you show them that we all have it, then people can really understand it and they buy in. So I think if I you asked me first, I would say, oh, I defaulted into it, but <laughs> it really became a part of my superpower. It, it really it, My superpower lends my lends me to do that. I mean, uh, you know, having known you for years, you're a natural teacher. Like, that's what you do. Uh, You teach in a lot of different things that you do in your life, not just in a formal setting. So one of the things that uh, jumps up to me in in listening to what you're saying is we've got 
uh, institutions that are responsible for, uh, for providing opportunities. We've got individuals who are responsible for their own opportunities, and I've, hopefully those two <laughs> yeah. coincide with each other. But can you talk a little bit about this in more depth, the institution's responsibility versus the individual's responsibility as far as people, you know, moving forward? Um, one conversation that I have seen had a lot in, in medical education when we have a student experiencing academic difficulty, and I think maybe this gets at your question a little bit. And so what do we assume when a student is having trouble? We often blame the student, right? We say, oh, well, their MCAT scores were too low. I don't know that they belonged here anyway, or, you know, this there's something going on with them. But we always stop there and we never go to the next level to say, well, how is our institution supporting students that are experiencing these conditions? Is there anything that we could do to bolster um, support in that particular area? We we completely um, absolve the institution a lot of times um, in our role in what we could do to support students. So we want students that are diverse, but then sometimes we're not prepared to help um, sort of bridge that gap with the diverse challenges that they might experience. So what if we have a single mother who is trying to go to medical school? That's wonderful. Do we have what that person's going to need to be successful, to have um, their best opportunity at maximizing their potential. And so I think the question we have to ask after we think about the individual factors is what about the organizational factors? And I would say when you have that diversity in leadership, uh, then you can have more diverse perspectives. I always think about uh, uh, the uh, rooms for women where they go to breastfeed or pump. And if you had more women in organizations, that would have been something that would have been thought about years ago. And you can imagine the levels of stress or, or, or difficulty it created. So uh, when you say leadership needs to be diverse, it sounds like, oh, that's just the thing you say. But when you think about the wide range of identities, and if you're becoming or you are a global organization, you need people at the top who are going to have those considerations to make those new and challenging decisions. Is there a You've heard, I'm sure, people who who speak the uh, from the other side, right? They're no, we don't need the adversity, diversity, et cetera, et cetera. What do you say to them? Um, I heard somebody uh, greater than myself recently say, uh, "Diversity is it is already here. It's not something that we can stop." Um, today's medical students are predominantly women. And we have more um, people applying to medical school that are diverse than ever before. So it's here. Um, it's on us now to prepare and to maximize the success because we need these doctors. We need them to be successful. We need them to do great. Um, the uh, uh, healthcare workforce is not keeping pace with a, a need. And that's a national problem. So it's something I think we need to be thoughtful about. Dr. Corral said it all. <laughs> so I'm very curious, if you two were talking to each other about this topic, what would you ask each other? I'm going to let you answer us first. <laughs> what has been the biggest challenge in your career working in uh, 
academia and diversity? Mm, the biggest challenge. I'm not sure um, how I would answer that, honestly, because I think as, as a clinical psychologist, I'm kind of like an eternal optimist. And I always think that change is possible. So when people say, oh, we can't figure out how to do X, Y, or Z, I'm like, well, let me try. <laughs> well, can I say, what has been the biggest opportunity? The biggest opportunity. <laughs> For the optimist. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think it's been trying to figure out how to bridge um, sort of the, the, the attitude and the cognitive gaps. Because we have professors, educators who care so much about the work that they do, and they are trying so hard, they're so busy and overwhelmed. Um, they want to do what's right by our students, absolutely. And then we have students really feeling like there's a gap, even though the intent is good. And um, so I see my role as being a bridge, as someone who has been sort of on both sides, being a diverse student, a first-generation student in particular, um, and now being on the part of the faculty. So. It's been a challenge in finding the how to build that bridge, I think. But um, that feels that work feels very familiar to me, and that that's what I do clinically um, for patients is sort of build that bridge, often between themselves and the and the medical system. So it's a challenge that I enjoy, and um, every setting is different. And so I think now that I'm in a new setting, the challenge is understanding the landscape here. Seems like you got a down pat. What about for you? I guess I'll um, turn the question back. Biggest challenge for you in doing the work that you do? Can I take the opportunity? <laughs> well, the challenge is, uh, as Mark asked, is uh, helping leaders understand why. Mm -hmm. um, and what I've seen in the work in the private sector and with academic institutions and nonprofits is that Again, it's uh, really about not getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. So we just did some work with uh, a global travel agency that works with, uh, that's all I'll say, the global travel agency. And they were well-meaning, but they focused on white guilt, white guilt, you know, white privilege. And I'm like, but there's an opportunity. You're bringing people around the world. There's a whole right. host of opportunities. You're already doing some great work. So when you approach uh, the work from a place of guilt, you can't even see what you're doing right. So um, in a lot of organizations, what you will see is that they'll say, we're all white men or we're all white people. But I'm like, there's a lot of other diversity. There's a lot of other things that you're doing right. And if you look at your, yourself from your brush with bias, just because you're a white man doesn't mean that you haven't experienced bias. And if you can tap into that, then you can tap into that understanding. So it's like helping leaders see why and then helping organizations understand that you're already well on your way. Um, and uh, just uh, taking a few more steps will get you there. Yeah. Okay. Just kind of creating those light bulbs. Well, nice. <laughs> it, it, I mean, and hopefully that is true, right? There are those light bulb moments that really shifts perspective mm -hmm. as well. I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that's come up several times in this conversation that's really interesting to me, and I hadn't thought about it until you said it is intention, mm -hmm. right? I, I love the example that you gave about I'm serving you shellfish my intention may be good, but you're allergic to shellfish. The, um, I think that becomes kind of a touchstone for people and maybe one of the reasons why, in some cases, when people are well-meaning or, or don't believe that they have uh, any, any biases and so forth, which we all do, right, 
um, that really becomes a nice point of conversation around to talk about. Let's let's separate out. You said it beautifully. Intention from impact. Impact, mm-hmm. right? And and talk about it from that perspective. I I just think that that's such a that's so important to be able to do that. And then it doesn't demonize uh, individuals as much as maybe it could be if you just make the assumption that people are doing it on purpose, essentially. It's interesting, too, because it's all about context. Mm-hmm. Because in America, we're going to talk about white privilege. But when you, when I leave America and go to other places, I have American privilege. So the the, the context changes it. And when you think of it in terms of bias and you can you can help people think across contexts, then they can see that it is not... Um, it's not that I'm a bad person because I have bias. We universally have it. And depending on the shift in the context, there's lots of intersectionality. And I can either be in power or excluded or both at the same time. It's interesting. I, I, you just reminded me I was on a train in Europe one time and there were uh, three guys that had on uh, Canadian, uh, like the Canadian flag and so forth. And, uh, and, I said, oh, where, you know, where are you from in Canada? They said, we're American, but we wear Canadian clothes because people hate Americans, right? It's the same kind of a thing, right? There are, there are biases in there. And that's a really interesting point because there are biases all over the place, right? And I think if we understand the, universi- the, the universal nature of this, then it's not about pointing fingers. It's about, you know, opening up perspectives, by the way, I find it particularly ironic that an international travel company has you know sort of a narrow frame of mind around that. There, one of my favorite quotes, Abraham Lincoln said, uh, show me a man often traveled and I will show you a man without prejudice, uh, which I don't think is entirely true. But, but I do think it's a good point, right? When you've experienced these other worlds, then it opens your eyes to things. And I think really that's that's what I hear from both of you. A lot of the training is really about opening, opening eyes and opening perspectives. So, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, understanding that your worldview is only one option, and that there are many other worldviews, um, that no one view is the correct view, um, mm-hmm. that is absolutely key in what we try to teach our students um, as they head out into a world where they're going to be seeing patients from all over the world. Um, start from there, and that's that's a, a good foundation. The worldview, it's it's interesting. You you made me think about this in a kind of a literal way. In in communication skills, a lot of times, if we're going to if we want a cooperative communication, uh, and someone's sitting down, or you're talking to a, a small child, uh, it suggests don't stand over the person to talk to them. Right? Mm-hmm. You get to at their level and see them eye to eye. And that's, in a lot of ways, what we're really talking about here as well. I want to thank both of you for being here. Before we leave, we've got a segment that we always do on these podcasts. It's one of my favorites, and it's called Moments of Joy. So we've talked about a lot of different topics. Um, these moments of joy are really yours, right? So, so it's anything that comes to mind when I ask you the question, tell me about a moment of joy that you've had in your life or moments of joy that you can share with us. So. Mine is flying kites. <laughs> so uh, about 
I would say four or five years ago, I was having a difficult situation in my life. And somehow the phrase came to me, go fly a kite. Uh, you know, I, and I, I literally did. Me and my friend, we went out and we bought these plastic kites from the grocery store. And I fell in love with it. And then I was on Amazon the next night. I was ordering kites. And then, you know, probably thousands, hundreds of dollars later, maybe thousands, uh, I have a kite collection. And they're like six foot wingspans. And my moments of joy are going out to the park and flying kites. Huh. Well, what is it about? flying the kite? I think it's, there are two things. I think one, there's a freedom in it, but then there's also like a surrender. You have to kind of, there's a, there's a technique. You don't just set it out there and it flies. If the wind's too strong, you really need some technique. Or if it's a little weak, you need some technique. But then once you get it up there, there's this surrender and everything's taken care of for you. All you have to do is hold on to the string. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, that's what it is for me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Dr. Corral? I think I have two answers, like personally, and I, and I love your answer, by the way, um, my moments of joy since the pandemic, I've sort of cultivated a hobby that I had a long time ago, and that's photography. Um, so when the world sort of stopped um, and there was not a whole lot to do, I started to just work on my techniques and somehow that turned into capturing the beauty of ordinary objects and ordinary spaces. And so it's become kind of a journey of mindfulness for me where now I do that um, weekly. I try to go out and capture interesting things and, and it's part of my gratitude practice, I think. But um, professionally, my moments of joy are always related to representation. And I think the moment you connect with a student who says, thank you for being here, it matters to me that you are here um, and that you are representing people just like me so that I know there's a path forward that's so powerful because um, it makes me feel like I am being the person I wish I'd had when I was a student. Interesting. What do those two things have in common? I think they're both about gratitude in some ways. Um, and it's about, you know, despite how hard the situation may be, there's always that moment of joy. So you cultivate that and that's what gives you fuel to keep on going. Well, I'm I'm very grateful for both of you for being here, your insights and uh, and uh, your vulnerability around your moments of joy. Beautiful. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And we're grateful that you spent time with us. We'd love to have you as part of our regular community. Please feel free to leave questions or comments for us. Uh, if you don't mind, rate us on Spotify and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you.